Hey, we're in Philippians chapter 3. Let me get right into it. So Philippians chapter 3, if you'll open your Bibles there, we will get right to work continuing our study through the book of Philippians. And as you're making your way there, I'm going to tell you a story about a guy named Henry Brown. Um, Henry Brown, a uh, slave in the 1800s, he actually lived in Richmond, Virginia in 1856, which if you remember your, your history, that was a really difficult time to be a slave, especially in Richmond, Virginia. And, uh, and this man, Henry Brown, seeking his freedom. And, uh, and so he, word came to him, he heard about a guy, uh, an abolitionist who was rescuing slaves in Philadelphia. And, and so there he is, Henry Brown, in Richmond, Virginia. It's some 300 miles from Philadelphia. And man, it might as well have been 3,000 miles. I mean, there was no way. I mean, he couldn't hope to get three miles, 30 miles, let alone 300 miles to where this abolitionist was that could hide him and help him escape this enslavement. But yet, you know, word came to him, and, and man, this is there, and he's got that hope, and like, what do I do? And, uh, and so what uh, Henry Brown did was he prayed, and, and he just sought the Lord, and, and God, please, I want to be delivered from, from my enslavement. And he really felt like the Lord had impressed upon his heart this crazy idea that he'd mail himself to this address in, in uh, Philadelphia. And so sure enough, the guy gets a crate, nails himself into this coffin, you know, the size of a crate, and he mails himself because he's just so sure, he's just so confident, and that's our word, confident that God had spoken to him in this way. Well, a day turns into two days, turns into several days, turns into a week, turns into two weeks. This man entombed in this, in this, this box that he's created himself into. But man, his confidence sustained him. He's like, I am so confident that this is what the, the, the Lord spoke to me to do. Three weeks went by. Finally, I, 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 you, know, you can't imagine the faith of somebody to entrust themselves to the U.S. mail service. <laughs> but three weeks goes by and he shows up at the, at the address in Philadelphia. And sure enough, this abolitionist opens up this crate. Can you imagine the sight and the smells after three weeks? And Henry Brown pulled himself to his feet and formally introduced himself to this abolitionist who secured his freedom. It's an amazing story. And, and I tell you this story as an introduction to this section of text here in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be going for, through the first 11 verses of chapter 3 together today. Because here's the thing. The big idea of today's text is that we can be confident of the Lord's provision for our salvation spiritually. Just as Henry Brown was confident that he had heard the Lord's voice and that the Lord was going to provide for him in the, you know, in the delivery of his physical circumstances, man, Philippians chapter 3, this first 11 verses, it's all about the confidence that you and I can have uh, in the Lord's provision for our salvation spiritually. And I would ask you to do this as we go through the text today. I, I just challenge you to kind of be hearing the text and filtering it through this question this morning, if you would. As we begin, consider, what is your confidence based in today? Where have you placed your confidence today? What are you trusting in 
today. Let's do this. Let's read the first 11 verses, and we'll come back and break it down, all right? Philippians chapter 3, beginning verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoicing in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also may have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence, there's our word, in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attend to the resurrection from the dead. Paul begins our text this morning by repeating himself. And I think that's fitting for Father's Day. Dads, don't you? Right? Don't you find yourself just repeating yourselves? Like, haven't I told you this a hundred times, right? And this is where Paul begins here. He says like, hey, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then, he, you know, he says, he acknowledges that he's repeating himself. So he says, for, for me to write the same things to you, it's not tedious. In other words, uh, it's not counterproductive. Might seem like, you know, I'm sawing sawdust here and we've been through this before, Paul's saying. I'm repeating myself. I know it, but I'm doing it for your sake. And I think that's fitting on Father's Day for, uh, for us to start a text with a guy who's repeating himself, right, dads? I mean, you just, man, it's, I'm, I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to you, and you're not hearing a word I'm saying, right? It reminds me of a story I heard uh, about a, uh, a pastor who, who goes hunting with a couple of friends of his. One of them's a doctor, one of them's a lawyer, and they all go out hunting, and this gorgeous buck comes, you know, there into view, and simultaneously, they all raise their rifles, they all shoot, And the buck just falls to the ground right there, you know, and they look at each other realizing what's just happened. And they're like, well, whose buck is it? And so the attorney says, hey, you know what? I know all about forensics. I deal with it all the time in my cases. I know entry wounds, exit wounds, and being able to differentiate between what the caliber of the round that was used was. And I'm going to go. I'll make an assessment. You can trust my assessment. I'll tell you whose buck it is. So he goes, he eyeballs the duck. He comes back. He He says, guys, without question... It's my buck. <laughs> Attorney. The, uh, the doctor says, oh, just, just hold on a second there, pal. In my line of work, you get a second opinion, all right? So I'm going to go. I'll give you a second opinion. So he goes, and he checks the buck. He comes walking back, and he says to the, to the attorney, he says, it's not your buck. He says, and it's not my buck. It's the pastor's buck for sure. He's like, how can you be so sure? He says, because it went in one ear and out the other. And, you know, really, Paul here, you know, he's, he's acknowledging the fact that he understands the fact, you know, so much of what I say is going to go in one ear and out the other, so I got to repeat myself. 
And he says, so for me to repeat myself, for me to say the same thing to you again, to write the same thing to you again, it's not a waste of time. It's not tedious. It's not counterproductive. It's important. It's needful for you. So what is it that Paul is writing again? What is he repeating? Well, first of all, what he's writing again, what he's repeating is this issue of joy. He's, he's repeating to them, listen, guys, joy plays a fundamental part in the Christian life. And you guys will recall, we've gone through in chapter one, you know, he, he sums up the philosophy of Christian ministry, and it's this big idea that there is joy in Christ. And, and you know, we, we sort of get the idea, he sums it up in one verse, in Philippians chapter one, verse 21, by way of review, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the picture of this, this philosophy, well, we see it in a, in a parable that Jesus told, where he, he told this parable about a man who, who found treasure hidden in a field, and he went and sold everything that he owned so that he could buy the field. And, and the idea there is that once he discovered this treasure, nothing else mattered. And, and this is the philosophy of Christian living. This is where our joy comes from philosophically as Christians, is that we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And, and so we can have joy, regardless of our circumstance, regardless of our situation. Man, because I bought the treasure in the field. And, and, and so, so philosophically, man, I can have joy. Well, Paul moves on from that in chapter 1 into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, he, ta- he goes from the, the philosophy of Christian living to the pattern of Christian living. And again, by way of review, we, we took a few weeks to look at that, how there's this there's pattern of, of the Christian life lived out that it involves working on humility and, and it involves the fact that we need help from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and quite frankly, it's just hard work. And Paul's careful to, to specify, you know, we're not working for our salvation, we're working from our salvation. And so it's this idea of, you know, hey, There's joy that's available to us, even though situations are difficult, trying, hard. We can have joy in the midst of that. Here's why. Because Paul will basically tell these these Corinthians in chapter 2, look, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. So in our day, you might say it this way, I'm being just completely wrung out for you guys. I am being put through the ringer for you. But he tells them, hey, but I rejoice with you and you guys should rejoice with me. Why? Well, because he says there in chapter 2 that it's God who works in you both to will and to do. In other words, yeah, you know, salvation is a free gift from God. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that today. But having been saved, now there's this sanctifying work that Paul kind of talks about in chapter 2, that now we need to work out our salvation. Not work for our salvation, but we work from our salvation. And working from our salvation understands, just again, getting the big picture, God's working in me, and God's working through me. And so, yeah, I can go through a difficult trial, but I can be encouraged, because in the midst of that work... It's God who's working. That there's something coming from this work. It's kind of like this. I, I, I built a deck in my backyard uh, last year. And it was a lot of work. And it took me, you know, s- several weeks to actually finish the deck. And, and some days, and I, you know, wouldn't you know what I do, do the project like in the summertime, you know, and so some of the days you're working long, hard, sweating, and, you know, and, and everything. And, and it just, but man, it's, I would sit at the end of the day and it's not done and I'm tired, 
But I would sit out there and I'd have a cup of coffee in the evening and I would survey the work, you know? And just this satisfaction of, man, that's the work of my hands right there. Look at that. That's awesome, you know? And this is the big idea that Paul's getting in chapter 2 saying, yeah, there's a lot of work in being a Christian. But, man, it's so satisfying when you understand that God's doing this work. He's doing it in you. He's doing it through you. Man, it's incredibly satisfying. Well, Paul continues here in verse 3, or in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And again, he's saying, hey, I'm repeating myself, I know, but hey, you can rejoice, you can have joy in, in this philosophy of Christian living, you can have joy in this pattern of Christian living. And he says in chapter 3, hey, you can have joy because there's a prize for Christian living. And this is the the overarching picture, the big idea of what he's going to say here. Basically, what he's going to say is this, that the prize for Christian living is that you and I can rejoice in the Lord because we can have absolute confidence in Jesus Christ for our salvation. That's the prize for Christian living. That, that as we have given our life to Christ, just as this slave could absolutely be confident. Hey, God told me to do this, and I know that I, the package is going to be delivered there, and I'm going to be delivered physically. We can have confidence knowing, hey, Jesus has done this work, and spiritually speaking, my soul is going to be delivered. Amen? I've got that hope of heaven to look forward to. This is the prize of Christian living. Paul puts it this way in verse 9 of chapter 3, and it just kind of encapsulates this whole idea He says that we can, if I can paraphrase, be found in him, not having our own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Now, guys, this is an absolutely radical concept. You need to understand that this issue, this idea of salvation by grace through faith, that it's not a work that you do and it's not a work that you earn, but it's a gift that's given to us from God. This is completely radical and separates Christianity from every world religion. Every world religion has within its tenets in some way, shape, or form this attitude, this idea of salvation through a system of works. Something that you have to do. It's your sacrifice. It's your good deed. It's your holy living. It's your karma. It's your keeping of the laws of the Quran or whatever it is. Every world religion has in its fundamental core the white knuckle, hey, you got to get down to brass tacks and you better, your good good deeds ought to outweigh your bad deeds. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get in. And even some so-called Christian religions have that woven in to their tenant as well. They add a grid or a matrix on top of the gospel, which requires you to interpret the gospel through their grid or matrix. For instance, uh, to be a Mormon, you have to put, you know, the doctrines of Joseph Smith and, and the, the covenants of the pearl of great price. And you, you put that over your Bible, you interpret your Bible through that, and the works and the things that are placed on you as far as what you have to do to earn your salvation, that's the way you interpret it if you want to be a Mormon, this attitude of working for your salvation. 
Or if you want to be a Jehovah's Witness, then you have to follow the teachings of uh, Charles Taze Russell and the the Watchtower Bible Tract Society. And you have to lay that over your Bible and all of the prescriptions that are in there about what you have to do to earn a right standing with God. Well, then you are required to keep that and interpret your Bible through that in order for you to earn the right to, to go to heaven. Or, you know, to be a Christian scientist, the same thing. You have to read the Keys to Science and Healing by Mary Baker Eddy, and you have to keep their rules and their regulations, and you have to interpret your Bible through that grid. And you see, the, the, in every instance of religion, the end result is that you're led away from Scripture and you're, you're burdened down by a yoke of works. And Christianity does not teach that. The Bible says that our salvation is by grace through faith. It is not that we have to go to confession to be saved or be baptized in order to be saved or our good works outweighing our bad works to be saved or that we have to speak in tongues to be saved or that it's King James only is the Bible you have to be reading if you want to be saved. This is not what the Bible teaches. See, because if that's the way that our faith worked at the end of the day, You're not going to have any peace because you're always going to be wondering where you stand. You're going to be like me, like when my wife says, I want to go shopping and I haven't balanced the checkbook lately. Terror, just right all over my face. It's like, I don't know if I got it or not. You know, let me go balance the checkbook. And you would live your life constantly having to balance the checkbook. Like, where do I stand with God? It's a completely horrible place to be. Now, here in Paul's day... He had to contend with a legalistic bunch as well. They're called the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were basically Jews who had converted to Christianity, uh, but they brought with them some luggage. They brought with them some baggage. And so what they basically said was that Jesus is not enough. You have to have Jesus and you have to be circumcised. Now, just a a quick word about circumcision. We all understand what circumcision is. Here's the story about circumcision. Basically, in in Genesis chapters 15 through 17, it's it's sort of laid out there. And I'll just, just, you know, paraphrase it for you here real quickly. Three chapters paraphrased uh, quickly. Um, Abraham, old man, right? No kids. Married to, to Sarah, old gal, no kids, right? And together, you know, there they are, and they're childless, and Abraham's lamenting to God, I don't have any heirs, you know, and and I'm going to have to, all all my stuff, I'm going to have to give away to, you know, somebody else, whatever the case may be. And and God's like, no, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a child. You will have an heir, an heir to to inherit everything that you have. And so Abraham's like, okay, cool. This is Genesis 15. Genesis 16. No heir yet, no child. Abraham's like, um, come on, God, you know, what, what's, what's up here? So Sarah gets a bright idea. She's like, hey, uh, you know, Abraham, why don't you sleep with, with my handmaid, Hagar, and, uh, and you, can, you can have a child that way. And so Abraham, being a man, he's like, okay, sounds good, right? And so he sleeps with Hagar, and they have this child uh, that, that they produce from this union. Uh, and, you know, there's Ishmael, and, and it's like, okay, Done. There's, there's the promise. God shows up, Genesis 17. He's like, that's not my promise. Look, I told you I'm going to give you an heir. And, and Abraham's like, yeah, there he is, Ishmael. And God's like, no, not Ishmael. God said, I, Abraham, we, we covered this. I told you I'm going to give you a child. So what God does there is he reaffirms this promise. Look, I'm going to give you a child. And then 
he has this thing that he seals this covenantal agreement with, circumcision. Um, Now, I'll just handle this as delicately as I can, but I'll simply say it's not lost on me that God takes... um, Men has a tendency to engineer things, right, on our own. It's like, I'll take it from here, God, I'll do it. And so Abraham has this promise of God, but God's not moving fast enough. And so Abraham takes um, this instrument uh, and and fulfills God's promise on his own. And God says, bring that instrument over here. Let me do something with that and institute this agreement with you so so that you've got this, this thing, that this reminder. Hey, listen, Abraham... I said that I was going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And so this is where circumcision comes from. And, of course, God comes through, and Abraham has his, his son, and just as God promised. So from that time forward, the Jews who were awaiting their coming Messiah uh, had their boys circumcised on the eighth day as this outward symbol of what was true inwardly, that they were children of promise. Uh, that they were living by faith in God. Well, over time, what happened is that uh, the Jews turned a relationship of trusting God by faith into a religion of, of trusting God by works, into, into a religion of this is what needs to be done in order for us to have this right relationship with God. And so they started seeing circumcision not as this, this outward symbol but rather as this saving act that they needed to perpetuate. And, and here in Paul's day, what these converted Jews, the Judaizers, were doing is they were doing the same thing in Christianity. They were coming in the Christian faith, and they're saying, Jesus' work on the cross is not enough. You have to have this external act, this work of your flesh that you do. To, it is Jesus and, you know, what you can add to it. So it's no longer about faith in Christ alone, but it's Jesus and circumcision. And this, guys, this is still something that we contend with today over and over and over again. It's Jesus and baptism. It's Jesus and speaking in tongues. It's Jesus and good works. It's Jesus and feeding the poor. It's Jesus and recycling. It's Jesus and going to confession. It's Jesus and living a moral life, right? And there's these ands that we place on it. Now, intellectually as Christians, we need to understand when you do that, by definition, you're leaving the biblical definition of salvation by grace through faith. And intellectually, we can understand that. But what happens is there's this thing in my heart that creeps in, and you guys know it because all of us have dealt with that, that says basically, well, If I'm a good boy, God's going to relate well to me. And if I'm a bad boy, then God's not going to relate well to me. And what happens is, and I describe it this way, is that Satan works both sides of the fence in our life, right? And so on this side of the fence, he tempts you to sin. And then you sin, and on this side of the fence, which he jumps over because the, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he's the, the father of lies, and so he jumps over to this side of the fence, and now he condemns you, and he says, oh, you can't go to God now. You know, you, you, you call yourself a Christian and you, you thought that or you said that or you did that. You can't go to God. And that's his objective is to keep you away from God. And so what, is, what Paul's contending with here is a group of guys who, who are sowing these seeds of, no, it's Jesus and your works. And so this is what <clears throat> he's up against. So Paul offers 
these guys this warning. He says in verse two, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And what you see here basically is it's a play on words. Um, Paul says three things that are, that are sort of a play on words that directly relate to what these Judaizers are saying. First of all, he calls them dogs. He says, beware of dogs. And he says, beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Three different examples there, which are a play on words. Beware of dogs. Basically, the Jews would say of Gentiles that they were dogs. They called the Gentiles dogs. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 that's not the issue. The dogs are the people that would try to, to insert religion and put a yoke of bondage on the people. That's the true dog, not the one who's, who's trusting in Christ, the saving work of Christ, salvation by faith. The other play on words is he says, beware of evil workers. Again, those Judaizers are saying that to be righteous, you have to work. You have to do something. And Paul says, no, that makes you an evil worker because to be truly righteous in God's eyes, you can't do anything. All you can do to be truly righteous in God's eyes is to recognize I'm a sinner and you're the savior. And you did everything and I did nothing. And I got the bargain out of this deal. And what that does, if you truly understand that, and if you take a walk with that, that what it does in your life, well, it's just like the book of Romans says, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's this, you go, you're so good. And now my relationship doesn't, it's not now I have to earn that right standing with you. It's completely turned on its head. And now it's, God, because you've been so good to me, I want to be obedient to you. I want to follow after you. I want to serve you. And so Paul says, you need to beware of evil workers. Thirdly, he says, you need to beware of the mutilation. And basically his point there is saying, if you buy into this garbage, then really at the end of the day, all you've done is you just mutilated yourself. You know, there's no spiritual benefit to it. That's, that's Paul's point here. And so Paul continues in verse four and he says this. Now, what what Paul's gonna do here is he's gonna rattle off all of his qualifications. We're gonna read Paul's resume here. And so he says, though I also may have, and there's our word, confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, that, that list up until this point, all a bunch of things that he didn't have any control over. This is what he was, you know, inherited uh, in his lineage and birthright and so on. Uh, I mean, he, at eight days of age, he couldn't help that he got baptized. He, if he's going by his resume and his works, he lucked out, right? And so he continues. Now it goes into what he has done himself. He says, concerning the law, a Pharisee. The most legalistic, high and tight, spun tight guy that there is in the Jewish faith. Man, I was a Pharisee. I did that myself. That right there, check. Big check mark, man. That, is a, that goes high on my resume, right? And then he continues. He says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Hey, you want to talk about somebody sold out? I killed Christians, man. Big check mark right there. If you want to talk about my resume, my religious resume. 
He says, concerning righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. Now again, this isn't blameless in the sight of God. This is blameless in the sight of men, but that's what religion's all about, isn't it? It's all about, hey, look at me and look at all the stuff that I did, right? And so this is what he says. Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. So Paul here, as he's talking, notice he says, I've counted these things lost. It's not just that, hey, these things weren't a benefit to me. No, they were actually, Paul says, they were actually a loss. They were actually a detriment. They weren't just not an asset. They, were, they actually were a, were a big deficit. Why does he say that? Turn uh, five books over to your left, the book of Acts, chapter 9. We're going to verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. Pick it up there. Uh, let's just read through this together and I'll, I'll comment as we go. It says, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, Then Saul, Paul, previously Saul before his conversion, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest... And he asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, any Christians, uh, then um, wherever, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem to kill them. You know? And so he went and he says, hey, can you guys, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Dog the Bounty Hunter. Can you give me you know, the paper so I can go hunt these guys down? That's what he's talking about. Now, I have written next to that section in my Bible, Philippians uh, 3.6, because that's where Paul says, man, concerning zealous, I was persecuting the church. This is what he's talking about. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You can only imagine what's going on in Paul's mind right there. Uh, and so verse 6 says, So he trembling and astonished, and I love that word astonished. It literally means dumbfounded. It's like he, he's confronted with everything in my life is a lie. And now it's all of a sudden he's dumbfounded. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? I mean, here, I'm going to kill your people, and I'm convinced that, you know, you aren't the Lord God, and now you have just shown up in this supernatural way in my life, and I'm like, my whole world is turned upside down. Yes, sir, what do you want me to do? And the, the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. I want you to take note of that. See, here's the deal. What we're talking about here today is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you guys, you're, as, as God's ambassador, as his messenger, I'm, I'm speaking the word of God. And, and I'm sharing God's words with you. And you all hear my voice, but not all of you see. And that's, that's the story of the Christian faith is that you going forth from this place, if you're a believer, if you share God's word, people will hear your voice, 
But not everybody's going to see, are they? And there's none so blind as those who will not see, right? And so here are these people with him. They hear his voice, but, but they don't see anyone. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. Uh, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He's, he's stricken blind. Verse 9, and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarshish, for for behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in, putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias here thinking that he's going to inform God something that God doesn't know, which is just silly. But Ananias answers and he says, Lord, I've, I've heard many things about this man, uh, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. I don't know if you know this God, but this guy's he's killing Christians and you want me to go see him, you know. And verse 14, and, and here he has authority from the chief priest to, to bind all who call on your name. You don't really want me to go minister to this guy, do you, Jesus? But the Lord says to him, verse 15, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Give me your attention really quick. This is super significant because even though Jesus appeared directly to Saul, he still uses a man to speak to him, to lay his hands on him. And guys, what you need to understand is that God has structured things this way. And so as I'm sharing today the gospel with you, at the end of this message today, I'm going to give an invitation for those of you that that perhaps have been trusting in your good works and, and haven't really been trusting Jesus in a true saving way. It's been for you, Jesus, and fill in the blank. And if that's you, I'm going to be giving you an invitation to, to once and for all receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, for many of you, if not most of you, you're going to hear that invitation and you're going to say, I'm already walking with Jesus. I have already prayed that prayer and I've already entered into a saving faith in Christ. And for that, we rejoice in the Lord. But I would say to you, take note of this section then, because you need to be like Ananias in the sense that you say, God, I will go to whoever you tell me to go to. Well, you know, gosh, that guy, he's... well, I'm going to be embarrassed if I share the gospel with him and he rejects it. Ananias went to the guy who was killing people. I guarantee it ain't going to be that bad. You might feel like it, that it's going to kill you. But the thing is, is that we need to be people like Ananias who say, Lord, all right, you tell me where, you tell me when, you tell me how, I'm yours. I belong to you. Can you imagine how this valley would be completely turned on its ear if we as God's people would have the attitude of Ananias that says, Lord, tell me who to talk to, I'll do it right? We need to be those people that say, Lord, I'm willing. I'll go. And so we, we continue here. Verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Verse 19, so when he had received food, 
he was strengthened, and then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, verse 20, 21 and 22, really significant. We're going to finish up with these verses here in Acts uh, 9, but, but pay attention. Verse 20, immediately he, that is Paul, preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the son of God. And then all who heard were amazed. And they said, is this not he who destroyed? Circle that word destroyed. We're going to come back to that. Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now give me your attention really quickly. Paul, we're talking about this idea of Paul saying, hey, whatever was gained to me, whatever was on my resume, it was actually a detriment. It was actually, it, it actually is, is not just not profitable, it's actually destructive. And that's the word, if you look in verse 21, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name. That word destroyed, literally, it means to lay waste. And, and it's the idea of a soldier who not only goes into an area and conquers an enemy, but after he, con- after he conquers that enemy, he lays waste and absolutely destroys. He destroys and burns up the village. He rapes the women. He kills the children. He absolutely lays waste to this whole area. And this is Paul. Hey, would you give me letters so that I can arrest them, whether they're male or female? I want to go in and decimate. I want to lay waste to. I want to destroy. And Paul says, hey, whatever was on my resume and all the religion and all the stuff that I trusted in, man, it was a complete loss. It was absolutely destructive. It was harmful. It was damaging. And man, as, as, as we read through this, it's interesting if you, if you look there in, in chapter 3, He says, not only do I count these things lost for Christ, but he goes on in verse 8 and he says, yet indeed I also count all things, here's the word again, loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the, he uses the word again, loss of all things. Now he's used the word loss three times. What other word can I use that, that is more than this is a negative, this is bad? Well, he uses it. He says, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see that word rubbish? Now, I don't know, again, I don't know if you're into marking your Bible, but if you are, circle it. Now, I'll tell you what several translations say about this word, rubbish. Some use the word garbage. Some use the word refuse. Some use the word filth. Some use the word dung. Here's literally what that word means. Literally, It means dog excrement. That's what that word means. There's one 17th century translation of this text that actually uses the S word in in association with this. This This is what Paul's saying. It is that graphic. He says, all of my religious works are a steaming pile. That is blunt, aggressive, harsh language. And I'll just remind you, it's not mine. It's the Apostle Paul's. Paul says, if you trust in your works, if you're trusting in religion, if you're here today, please, friend, hear me. 
If you're here today and you think that there's going to be some sort of a celestial, you know, tally sheet when you get to heaven that your good works outweigh your bad works and I'm not like Charles Manson and I'm a decent guy and God, can I tell you, Paul says it's a pile of dog excrement. That's what it's worth. That's the value of that. And I don't know about you, but here's what I think about. You guys remember Bernie Madoff? Back in, in 2009, he was convicted of the largest Ponzi scheme in United States history. He stole $65 billion from his investors. And imagine you're one of those investors and your entire life savings has just, you've got it all on paper and you just realized it's worthless. Can you imagine that? Some guy makes off with your entire life savings. Can you imagine anything worse than you work your whole life and you invest and you think, man, we get next month we get to retire and then you realize, man, it's, it's worthless. There is something worse. It's you trusting in your own works. It's you trusting in religion for your salvation and you come to the end of your life and you stand before the Lord and, you, and he says, it's worthless. It's absolutely worthless. And I ask you the question today, what is it that you're trusting in today, Christian? What is it that you're trusting in today? Man, I thought I was a Christian. What is it that you're trusting in? What is your confidence? Where is your hope lie? Paul says, I count it all as dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And notice verse nine, he says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now, again, if you're into taking notes, there at the beginning of verse 10, he says that I may know, or I'm sorry, there at the beginning of verse nine, he says, and be found in him. See that phrase, and be found in him? Here's what that speaks of. What that speaks of is this idea of, the judgment which is to come. It's the idea of when your day comes to give an account for God, where is he going to find you? That's what this idea is. You think about Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, they've, they've sinned against God. They did what he told them not to do. And God comes looking for them. And they hear him, and what do they do? They hide from him. Right? And can I just tell you, there ain't nowhere to run. There ain't nowhere to hide. The, 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 it's just completely, we, we can't hide from God. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says it's, a, it's, a, it's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. There will come a day when you stand before God and you can't run and you can't hide. It was the spring of 1988. And I was working in Sun City as a paramedic. I had just transferred out from Los Angeles where I was working as a paramedic, and now I'm in Sun City. And, um, and we get dispatched to this house, and we find uh, this man sitting in his recliner, and he's dead, just dead as a doornail. There was no working him up. It was pronouncing him. And I, I can't tell you how the Lord found him on that day in terms of his judgment. But I'll tell you how we found him. We found him naked from the waist down. We found him sitting in front of the TV with a video cassette in the, DVD, in the CD player or the, the VCR player that he'd rented down at the local adult movie place while his wife and her sister were away. 
And tragically, we found this man dead. That's, that's where we found him. More tragically, that's where his wife and sister found him. This poor woman, for the rest of her life, her final memory of her husband, naked from the waist down, watching a porno movie. He was literally caught with his pants down. And, uh, God, it's just so tragic. And here's what Paul is saying. He says in verse 9, man, I want to be found in Jesus. I don't want to be caught with my pants down, spiritually speaking. I don't want to have trusted in everything that I could do, all of the works that I could do, and come and stand before the Lord, and there I am, spiritually speaking, and I got nowhere to run. I got nowhere to hide. Everything I trusted in is a lie. Listen, the Bible says this in the book of James. It says, what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes away. And listen, the day is coming, guys, for every single one of us, and it's sooner than we think when we will all stand before God. And what will we say to God on that day? What will be our answer to the question, why should you enter in? to the kingdom of God. There's one answer on the entrance exam to heaven. It's Jesus Christ. That's the only answer. It's the only acceptable answer. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And the Bible says that if you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you will confess him with your mouth, the Bible says that you will be saved. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6 tells us when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. But in order for that to mean something in your life today, listen to me as I draw this to a close, you have to trust Jesus and not in yourself. And so my question for you today is what are you trusting in? 